with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Welcome to After 9. I'm your host, Rez Krebs, and here we're today. Today we're back with the Friday panel, uh, Eric Allen, Peter Ewart, Trudy Clausen, and Art Betke. I think we're going to start with uh, chaos in the Capitol. We've got a record-breaking number of votes to uh, to elect a Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, who is the presumptive nominee for the grand old party there. The Republicans seems to be unable to broker a deal to get himself elected as a Speaker. And uh, based on their or elaborate, I would say, system of governance, you can't do anything else unless you have a Speaker. Um, so uh, let's start with Eric. What do you think about this, Eric? Are we going to get someone who's going to be, um, I guess, acceptable to the entirety of that of the Republican Party? Are we going to ch- to change from Kevin to someone else? Are we going to go left or right with that nomination with that person? I think I'll go with Kevin. This is uh, it's power politics, definitely. The people that are uh, uh, holding out right now, they want certain things. They want jobs. They want appointments. They want money into their different writings. And so they negotiate it. And if you don't give it to me, I ain't going to vote for you. And that's the way they play, they play hardball that way. You know, I remember reading the story about uh, some guy drove through the state of Kansas and just, you know, four or eight lanes of highway and no traffic. And he said, you know, what's, what's going on here? I've never seen so much highway in my life. And the guy from Kansas said, well, when you negotiate with the senators, they got to give you something. And so every time we negotiate, they build us another island. Amazing. That's just to get the votes. So that's what happens. Yeah. Trudy, what do you think about this uh, this situation here at the House of Representatives? I mean... Well, I've hardly been keeping track. I've been busy with other things. But... Uh, and I really... I, I guess... I sometimes just wonder, why do we spend so much time talking about American politics? Um, <laughs> it's entertaining. <laughs> it's entertaining. Gosh. Um, I, I think it's... I mean, it's uh, like Eric was saying, if, if that's the way it's, it works, that you negotiate. I mean, we certainly don't have that kind of thing happening to our I mean, we certainly do a very bad job up here in northern B.C. <laughs> if we've got um, I mean, I guess in terms of like that playing that kind of game. Right. Um, because we always elect or it seems too often we elect people who aren't actually going to be in government. And, um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where I'm, that that's swings where, back and forth every 10 years well, or so. You get, you get does. someone who's in government. It does. But then we always, you know, then we always don't have any money. So, <laughs> so to, to, you know, to build not even a two lane high or a four lane highway down to the lower mainland. But that's all I've got to say because it's, I've, I've really not kept track of the whole, of the whole issue. Right. Apparently. So I, last, last time I checked, it was seven votes. But people are saying that there have been now 12 votes. For this Kevin well, McCarthy there have been character. apparently like there was one time they had I think sixteen votes, right? Sixteen rounds, right? So it hasn't broken the total record, but no. it has broken the record since nineteen twenty-three. Peter, what, uh, are we going to get a Speaker of the House anytime soon? Uh, probably, uh, but uh, it doesn't fix the pro- that won't fix the problem. Uh, the problem, in my opinion, is uh, the dysfunctionality of the electoral and governance system as a whole in uh, the U.S. There's many uh, examples of this. Where, th- where it's just not working, right? You know, where you can't even have the transfer of power between presidents 
to, to go peacefully or whatever. Uh, what's taking place, in my, in my opinion, is that there's a cold civil war going on there. And yes, the, you have Republicans and Democrats, but it's also within the parties themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what you have are uh, the factionalization of politics in the, in the states where you have big business interests, states' interests, like there's various states that are uh, you know, connected to all of the, all of this division and, and so on, and uh, so you have this uh, this situation whereby uh, you know the the dysfunctionality just deepens more and more, and uh, th- this is just a prelude, right? In the sense that uh, if this is the way it's going to go, what's going to happen with the uh, uh, the, the uh, legislation is necessary to, to you know to to pay to pay the government bill. In order to keep yeah, the right. to, to pay. they shut down. It seems every year now, and and also the you know the repaying the uh, the, the debt and the whole question of the debt ceiling and so on, you know. But that's in my opinion that that's the problem is that there's a dysfunctionality there. There's a real need to renew the democratic process in the U.S. and, and not just on this aspect, but on a whole number of other aspects. Right. Art, I mean, we're, the, some of the analysis I've seen is talking about um, the interests of incumbents and worried that, you know, the, the party is funding primary campaigns against them. Right. But these seem to be a pretty fringe bunch of people. Like, do, do you think that they're that they're going to get their way? These like 18, 12, to 18 holdouts. Or are we going to are we going to be looking at uh, somebody new? Well, these, these 12 to 18 holdouts aren't all on the same page either. Uh, some of them uh, want a Republican Congress to act conservatively and to reverse a lot of the major messes of the Democrat administration of the last two years. And uh, McCarthy has made concessions in, in that area. Uh, but there's some others who don't want McCarthy in there at any reason under any circumstances, apparently because uh, he was uh, withholding funds, campaign funds from uh, uh, candidates who supported Donald Trump. So they just don't like him, period. Uh, But the big reason for this stalled thing, uh, election of the speaker at the moment, is because they have such a slim majority. There's always a few who vote against the, the speaker within the Republican Party. But when you've got a big enough majority, it doesn't matter. He still gets voted. But now with a, such a slim majority, he needs these votes. And that's what's causing the big schmozzle. I find it really interesting that they don't... We were just talking before the show. Like, is there no possibility of them attracting any Democratic votes? I remember in the Senate they had some similar issues with one Democratic senator who was quite right-wing... And they had they had to really work hard to maintain his favor, right? Uh, Joe Manchin. Yeah. Uh, so, do you, do you have any ideas of why they wouldn't be thinking about? Well, if they can't get these twelve to eighteen guys over on the far right, can they can they get some of the writer, you know, uh, folks on the Democratic side? I'm sure McCarthy is thinking that, but I think the Democrats are just loving what's going on. There. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I agree, but you got to keep in mind that. I mean, uh, the uh, United States is the number one country in the world. So a country with a bad bad political system... Sorry, Eric's trying to use a mic that's not working. A country with a bad political system like the United States is doing quite well. 
I say that their system works really good for them. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is this job, the House Speaker, which I didn't know until this thing started, is that job is third in line for being President of the United States. Right. I mean, it's a, it's something more like, uh, I mean, we have the Speaker of the House in our in our yep. system, but it's not the same, not at all the same. It's more of like an executive function inside the inside the legislature, right? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he's, he's third in line. So I guess they want to make sure they get the right guy in there. And they apparently can appoint somebody. Yeah, it doesn't, he doesn't have to actually be elected. Peter? Uh, yeah, just to look at what's, to, what's taking place here in the sense of what's being exposed is how the, uh, the inner workings of these parties operate. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's not very pretty, right, in, in that regard, right? You know, like, just, just one example of the, these omnibus bills, like the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that got pushed through there. Well, the uh, ordinary members of the, of the House uh, oftentimes only have a, several hours to actually look over the thousand pages of legislation or whatever, right? So one of the demands of these people is to, uh, is to call for at least 72 hours to be able to look at things, right? Yeah, like it's almost a human rights issue. <laughs> you got to read a thousand pages in 24 hours. <laughs> because because what's, what's actually happening here? And they're probably right. You know, Mac- people like McCarthy, the speakers like McCarthy meets with the Democrats. It's behind the scenes. It's backroom stuff. The ordinary members of the legislature are left out in the cold unless they have, uh, you know, some kind of uh, big special interest behind them. That's know. that's a really interesting point because most of the you know the headline news on this issue has been all oh, these you know these hard right wing hard line right wingers are the ones that are holding out against McCarthy. But in fact, there are there are a few of these like interesting points about procedure and fairness yeah. that are sneaking in there, and, and the the rights of backbenchers, which is something that we certainly see in Canada as well. The, exactly, with the omnibus, we have the omnibus uh, bill legislation that gets yeah. rammed through, and all this, yeah. and the and the party bosses and all this are meeting behind closed doors and whatever, right? So, yeah, like we can Happens point to the U.S., the but we have to look at our own situation as well. Yeah, I've got. One more comment to make. A lot of people are saying this is just shows how fractured the conservatives are, and you know this. The conservatives never get along. They always <laughs> fracture. There's so many different variations. There's social conservatives. There's fiscal conservatives, and some people are both social and fiscal. And uh, there are some who think the only way to get elected is to concede some ground to the left. And there's others who think any concession to the left left is a death blow to the country. And some think no concession is a death blow to the country. Uh, there's always division in in the right wing. Uh, I recall when Hillary Clinton was uh, running for office and she talked about the vast right-wing conspiracy. And right-wing columnist Ann Coulter quipped that uh, the right couldn't get together long enough to organize a barbecue. And uh, that's the way they've always been. That's the way they always will be. I guess, I, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but one of the things that uh, you know, on the media side of things that people have noticed is that the the right, you know, they will they will at least help like fellow travelers, like the media side of things, whereas the left is like eating their young, you know, like, the, oh, you're going to show up on a left wing talk show uh, and you're you're already agreeing with me on 90 percent. Well, we're going to focus on that 10 percent where we don't agree and I'm going to try to eat you alive. <laughs> I think that happens on the right, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think what we need, uh, what we, you know, keep our eye on what's going on here. It makes a solid case 
for provincial politics in Canada to have at least 10 ridings where you can elect independents so they don't have to answer to the party system. And then you get some things done. You sure don't get it done this way because as soon as you're elected, they zip your mouth and tie your hands and tell you to go home and be quiet. So we're going to end up agreeing with Peter here. I think so. Ah, this is Peter's day. Yeah. I, 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 I said I, independence. I didn't say that. <laughs> well, the, it's funny because here in Canada, we were talking before the show about the whip, the role of the whip. Like, this would never happen in Canada. That whip has so much power over you as a... And they'll just expel you from the party, right? Um, and then you've got no way of, of getting elected ever again. That's why you need independence. That's what, right? Um, that mixed member proportional system that was initially... Uh, proposed under the electoral reform, um, mm. the referenda that we had in what, 20 years, 20 odd years ago, that would have enabled that at least, right? Because you could be electing multiple people in a single riding. You see, but the good thing about independent, independent is that he can vote for a liberal or he can vote for an NDP or he cannot vote because he's representing his constituency. And only independents represent their constituency. The rest of them represent the party. You know what? uh, On this note, um, I I saw this really interesting animation that demonstrated uh, kind of working across the aisle and voting for the other party's legislation. This was in the United States. So in the mid-50s, you had a ton of overlap. You had Republicans voting for Democrat uh, proposals all the time. And that gradually... Uh, polarized until now we have almost almost zero people who are working across the well, aisle. Well, then I can talk about something that I actually know a little bit about because I know nothing about this whole, or very little about this whole speaker thing. Tulsi Gabbard actually just re- quit the Democratic Party because, and if you listen to when she's being interviewed, she's talked a lot about the fact that that doesn't happen anymore. Right. That it is partisan. Even if she said, like, in I think she was governor of Texas, I think, or a congressman from Texas, or no, not from Texas, from right. Hawaii. Um, she said, like, if you walk down the hall and you would say hello to a, she was a Democrat, if you set, stopped and chatted with a Republican, the Democrats who saw you doing that would chastise you afterwards. Wow. And so that is, that's, I mean, you know, we, the voter, the electorate expects that they're electing adults. And that just does not seem like very adult to me. Well, right right here in Canada, I recall uh, when the Liberals had a majority and uh, some Conservative would put forward a private member's bill and the Liberals would all vote against it and then a month later they'd introduce an identical <laughs> bill and pass it. That's, that's the Liberal Party right there, right? Take the best, take the best ideas yeah. that anyone's got, steal them and make them your own, right? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back after these messages, and we'll be talking a little bit about uh, Putin's proposed Christmas gift to Ukraine. There isn't much that a country singer hasn't covered in a song. If you want to hear songs about new love, lost love, drinking, fighting, cowboys, trains, traveling, and everything else, then tune into the Country Cavalcade every Wednesday, 6 to 8, where I cover music from the 20s to the 90s, as well as today's traditional independent artists. You'll hear from such greats as the Carter family, Johnny Horton, Vern Charlton, and so much more. The Country Cavalcade, Wednesday, 6 to 8, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM with me, Corey Walker. 
Choosing to be curious is choosing to be vulnerable because it requires us to surrender to uncertainty. We have to ask questions, admit to not knowing, risk being told that we shouldn't be asking, and sometimes make discoveries that lead to discomfort. This is Kaylee from Books and Company, and that was a quote from Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, mapping meaningful connection and the language of the human experience. Come check out this big, beautiful self-improvement title in store at 1685 Third Avenue or online at booksandcompany.ca. We're always happy to chat with fellow book lovers. Hello, Suzanne here from Tops and Bottoms. We are now offering the ultimate in personalized service as we are seeing our customers by appointment only. Attention cannot be in two places at the same time. Take advantage of our personalized service today to find the comfortable fit that's right for you. Book your private fitting through our website link at topsandbottoms.ca or call us at 250-614-1553. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud today. Southeast winds at 20 gusting to 40k becoming light this afternoon. A high of minus 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 9. Tonight a few clouds. A wind up to 15k. A low of minus 5 with a wind chill to minus 11. For Saturday mainly sunny. Wind from the south at 20. A high of 0 with a morning wind chill to minus 10. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. So this weekend marks uh, the the Orthodox Christmas um, that is celebrated in both Russia and the Ukraine by Orthodox Christians. And President Putin of Russia has, uh, has ordered a 36-hour ceasefire for his own troops and is asking the Ukrainians to do the same, you know, in the spirit of, of loving kindness. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky, president of the Ukraine, is saying that uh, this is just a cover and he's, he's trying... <laughs> He's he's basically um, they're riding high, they're advancing on the Russians, and uh, it sounds like he's not going to be um, using Christmas as an excuse to stop the fighting. Uh, Trudy, I mean, is this? Do you think that Putin is actually looking for an excuse to to try to rebolster his um, uh, his kind of flagging um, forces, or is he is this actually a, a gesture of good faith? Gosh, I I mean, in, in, this is war, right? I mean, we're not talking about times of peace. And, and I think in times of war, you use whatever you've got at your disposal. Um, I mean, I today is January 6th, with, which is actually Epiphany, which is the visit of the three wise men from the East. Maybe what we need here is three wise men from the East <laughs> to come and, come and talk some sense into Putin and... and uh, <laughs> You got it here. <laughs> That's right. You're the fourth wise woman. Yeah, well, and just to, um, because it just seems that as the longer this goes on, there's just so obviously less and less of a win in it for, for Putin. And so, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think he's, you know, using whatever he has got. He's, I mean, his troops could obviously use a rest much more than the Ukrainian troops. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Peter, do you think that this is, is this signaling kind of the, the defeat of Russia here. I mean, they're, they just lost, I think the latest number, uh, verified by the Russian authorities was 89 troops in that, uh, in that explosion at their bunker. Yeah, I don't think it's, uh, anywhere, like, you get, you get both sides, like, you get the Russian side saying that they're winning and the Ukraine side saying they're winning. Uh, I think it's a lot closer than that, right? There's a war of attrition that's going on here. And there's a lot of cheerleading on, the, the, you know, different sides, right? But uh, I think the reality is different there. Like, I, I think that uh, Ukraine has to, in, in looking at this situation from their point of view, they have to be very careful here, right? Because uh, 
uh, as things go on and all this, Russia has a much bigger economy and has uh, much bigger military and military equipment and so on. So a war of attrition uh, is not in uh, the, the interests of, uh, well, of anyone there. But uh, in terms of why uh, Putin did this, like, well, who knows? But uh, I do know the one thing that uh, last spring, Russia and Ukraine were very close to, to establishing a, a, a peace deal. And uh, Turkey was moderating it, and uh, you had uh, guys from the east. You had Russia, uh, Russia agreeing to uh, uh, the pre-invasion uh, borders, and in return, Ukraine would uh, n- not join NATO or not allow foreign military bases to be built on its territory. But then, what happened is Boris Johnson, probably acting on the the, uh, the the push or the advice of the Biden administration went there and told uh, Zelensky that uh, there's no way that the U.S. and the West would support uh, this uh, kind of peace deal and basically threatened them, saying that they would pull out their their support completely. You know, so what does that mean? It means that this is a proxy war. You know, that you have a situation where the... Uh, U.S. is uh, using the Ukraine situation for its own interests. I, I think that what's really important here is that the Ukrainians, uh, they have to come t- to their own decisions on these things and not be used as proxies by the, by the U.S. And, uh, and the Russians would have to, uh, you know, agree to, you know, some kind of a uh, deal, some kind of peace deal or whatever, right? But... Um, this problem is uh, more complex than they say. Like, I, I don't think, uh, you know, cheerleading uh, the Ukraine or, or, or Russia, for that matter, is in anyone's interest. It's in the interest to, to, to get a peace deal that, that, that works there that uh, will uh, uh, tone down these tensions. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it's actually more about more for internal propaganda to demonstrate like Putin as a as kind of a reasonable broker here, you know that, and actually for, you know just a gesture so that so the Russians feel like he's actually doing something right. What do you think, Art? That could well be. There's a lot of Russians who are quite opposed to the war, um, but I gotta I gotta agree with Zelensky. I I think he's he's looking for a breathing space here. He wants to regroup and resupply and just re you know get entrenched and ready to fight on. And uh, he's, he's hoping that uh, the Ukrainian forces will have a ceasefire as well, so he can do that. Um, like he's he's in a in a pickle. Putin is yeah. Like he made a big mistake invading in the first place. Why did he do that? It's he had no reason. It's, it was an irrational decision. And now he's saying that well, it's you know the the Ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis and. Uh, Russia was under threat, uh, just like uh, in uh, World War II from Hitler. It's exactly the same situation. So we had to strike first, and that's nonsense. Nobody was going to invade Russia, especially not Ukraine, even with all the backing of uh, Europe. Or and uh, it, he's in a position now. He thought he would zip in there, and two weeks later he would conquer the country, and uh, it backfired on him. He had. He had no idea what he was getting into, and now he's he's got the tiger by the tail. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to quit. He doesn't want to retreat, uh, and he feels politi- politically uh, pressured not to retreat. That would be like a surrender, a defeat. 
he can't handle that personally or politically. So I think this is going to go on for some time yet. Eric, do you think there's a way out of this for Putin? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I was just kind of thinking here, like it wasn't that long ago in the 50s we had the Hungarian Revolution. And I didn't get a chance to look and see what the stats were there or how long it lasted or how many people immigrated from the country during that time. And then the other saying that's been around for a thousand years is the first casualty of war is truth. So you can't believe anything that anybody's saying. The other thing that kind of makes me wonder, uh, you know, given the Christmas off, my understanding of communist Russia is that they're atheists. What do they do in celebrating Christmas and giving time, people time off? I'm confused. Well, they're, they're no longer communist. No. I, I, if you, I know we were talking about dementia earlier, but uh, it's been <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's been thirty years. Putin, Putin <laughs> communists, yeah, members no. of the Communist Party. <laughs> but, they were, yeah. But Putin did has done a huge amount of work on establishing himself as being a supporter of the Orthodox Russian Orthodox Church, and that has been part of his plan. See, all he needs to do this is the way out. Okay, now you remember. Mr. Gorbachev, take down that wall. So now you need this Zelensky, another actor, just like uh, the American That's uh, right. president. Like Reagan, yeah. And say, Mr. Putin, get your troops out of Ukraine. And I wonder, actually, I, I, I would bet that the terms of a peace deal are going to be something like the one that uh, Peter was talking about with, okay, you're not allowed to join NATO, right? These kinds of, right? Because, I mean... It does look like a proxy war to me. They're using all the all the gear from the United States. It looks like Afghanistan, and Europe. right? And Europe, right? Um, it looks a lot like Afghanistan in '79, with with all those mujahideen with their uh, you know the missiles and tanks and whatever else that they were getting supplied to from the from the United States fighting the Soviet Union. I mean, it's it's from from the from the Russian side, they see themselves backed into a corner. You know, like uh, th- that doesn't come out uh, enough here, like in terms of the rationale as to whether you agree with it or not, right? Uh, this goes back uh, a whole number of years when uh, NATO was moved eastward uh, in, a, in, in contradiction to what had been promised to Gorbachev not to move it eastward on the borders of Russia. Uh, you had uh, the 2014. Uh, overthrow of the government there, which the Russians see as it was a coup that was organized by, by the U.S. Right, right and that's so, when they first started their invasion. There so, so, so yeah. there's a there's a, a, a perspective there that that often doesn't, you know, like I, I think what we need to do is understand all the perspectives there, and then on that basis you you can forge some kind of peace deal or whatever, right? But uh, right now it's uh, the the. Uh, Information that we get in all this is uh, so one-sided, or whatever. We, it's it's hard to uh, get to that place. I think I think the one uh, positive thing that has come out of this is that more of the, uh, the Western Europe is the countries are beginning to take responsibility for their own defense. Hmm. Um, like after the Second World World War, you know, it was basically America saying we'll defend you and. And uh, you guys don't have to worry about your own armies. And, and I think what's happened is is that they've sort of woken up and said, well, wait a minute, we actually do need to take responsibility. And I think that that's a good thing because it, it disperses power. It uh, makes the Western European countries a little bit less dependent on the U.S. And I think that's always a good thing. Yeah, we need to rearm Germany, I guess. No, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're just going to Japan, too. Yeah. <laughs> Japan I'm just going to touch on that. Germany actually has a, an army... 
twice or three times the size of Canada, and so is Japan. So our two enemies are yeah. now yeah, back know. where they were. But <laughs> I mean, I, to, to be fair, uh, Germany has a population of something like 90 million, right? Yeah. So it's, it's still, almost proportional. You know. Yeah. Well, we got we got sixty rangers up in the north, and we're going to defend our sovereignty. <laughs> All right, well, we do have to take a short break here. We'll be talking a little bit about the uh, this extension of an oil and gas moratorium on drilling in the north. The Prince George Iceman is celebrating its 36th anniversary with the return to a full Iceman event. Experience the season with the Ultimate Winter Challenge, an 8K ski, 10K run, and 5K skate, followed by a 5K run and an 800-meter swim. It's a race for everyone from beginner to elite athlete with solo and relay team categories available. Registration is available through pgiceman.ca or the Prince George Iceman Facebook page. The 2023 Prince George Iceman, Sunday, February 12th, Experience the excitement. Starting in January, children ages 2 to 4 and their caregivers can enjoy an hour and a half each week of songs, stories, playtime, and most importantly, art at Two Rivers Gallery. It's also a chance for caregivers to meet while getting messy with paint, glue, and more. Have fun creating without the cleanup. It's Wild Side Seedlings, 10 to 11.30 Friday mornings from January 13th to March 10th. Register today through Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. The United Way's annual Tree of Lights campaign is still short of its goal of $85,000. The campaign is still on until Sunday, and donations can be made at the Coast Hotel front desk or online at uwtol.ca. Each donation will earn an entry to win a special I'm Not Cooking restaurant pack, which includes gift certificates to multiple Prince George dining establishments. Tickets, donations, and full details are all available at uwtol.ca. The holiday season is often a time spent sharing memories and laughter with family and peers. It is also a season of giving thanks and helping people in need. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is celebrating courage this holiday season. Dementia is a disease with no cure and requires courage every day. People like you across BC are coming together to show courage. Show your support and donate today through alzbc.org. If you've already made a holiday donation, thank you for your support. And thank you for showing courage. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. So Bob Zimmer was in the news recently criticizing the extension of this initially five-year moratorium on drilling in the Arctic uh, for oil and gas, uh, saying that, you know, there are folks up there who are demanding that they need to see more drilling, they need to see more uh, more jobs. Um I'm just looking at some reports from uh, the International Energy Agency also claims that, you know, actually demand for oil is going up right now. Certainly hasn't reached its peak. Um, of course, the concern for drilling in the Arctic is clearly about spills in the environment, very sensitive uh, ecosystem. And we saw the Deepwater Horizon and the Gulf have that awful, uh, huge spill that I don't even know has been actually cleaned up yet. Um uh, yeah, the stuff that they put into the ocean to try to clean it up was did worse, more harm than good, is what I remember. Peter, um, how are we supposed to balance these two issues here with uh, economics and the environment at play? Uh, well, I think in this situation, uh, I, I don't agree with uh, that, that we should go ahead with Arctic uh, oil and gas drilling. I, I think it's a it, it would just be a situation where we screw up the Arctic landscape even more. You know, because we look at the track record, right? You know, that, uh, 
uh, spills are you know pretty well in, inevitable, like the the BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, the Exxon Valdez, which they're still cleaning up to this day after several uh, number of decades. You know, so you have this situation whereby uh, any kind of spill would be uh, complicated even further. Like, how, how do you deal with a spill when you're dealing with an ice-covered ocean? You know, and uh, you know, so with this circumstance, the way things are in terms of the of the record of oil and gas industry, uh, I would say that uh, that that record is not uh, good enough to be able to go ahead with this. And uh, I think it would be a big big mistake. We have. Uh, there's oil and gas in other parts of Canada, you know, like uh, there's Alberta, the peace country, Newfoundland, whatever, and all this, right? Uh, why do we need to go into that pristine landscape, which is already under threat in various ways? All right, what do you think here? We got, you know, we're, we've got the environment on one side and we've got the demand for oil on the other. One more year of moratorium. I mean, you think that they're going to actually lift at the end of that? Absolutely not. Uh, Trudeau has made it abundantly clear that he intends to kill all fossil fuel industries and extraction in, in given enough time, and uh, probably even other resource industries in Canada as well. So, you know, there's no way he's ever going to lift a moratorium on that one in such a sensitive area. Uh, when he's trying to shut down other stuff, I mean, he said he's going to shut down the oil sands, and so uh, you know, no, no, he's he's not going to lift a moratorium. Um, as far as spills go, really, yeah, they do happen, but uh, they're fairly rare, actually. That big blowout in the Gulf of Mexico was only because of some, I can't remember just what it was, but they, they cut some costs somehow because of uh, regulations or something like that. Uh, and uh, so the, it, uh, the, the safety backups and such uh, didn't work. Uh, and the other thing is... Uh, they went looking, you know, after it was all over, you know, it did wash up on the shore and cause some problems there along the Louisiana shore. But they went looking for how many millions of gallons or barrels did it put into the ocean down deep? They couldn't find it after a month. It just totally disappeared. So, you know, nature does have a way of uh, cleaning up oil itself. Off the coast of um, California, there's natural oil seeps into the water coming up all the time and uh, nature deals with it of course California water is a whole lot different than the Arctic so it'll be a different story up there uh, whether the nature has a way of handling it there I don't know but I, ju I just can't see that Trudeau will ever let that go ahead Eric how are we supposed to balance these issues here I mean we, we have some of the rarest kind of sea life on earth right and, and we know that uh folks up there actually depend on hunting those animals if we're going to threaten them or is it worth it for the oil that we might get out of that well you know we've got to look at uh, i always like to use this one because it's so so indicative of what actually happens remember nine out of ten doctors smoke camels <laughs> <laughs> see and we bought into that went out and bought cigarettes and smoked like the chimney and a lot of us ended up getting lung cancer, et cetera, et cetera. It took fifty or sixty years before the tobacco companies actually had to make any payments on that. And then we legalized marijuana to pick up the lost revenue. So <laughs> you don't know you don't know really what's going on out there. But it seems awful strange to me that the oil industry is already on record is saying that they expect to be using oil for the next 50 years, okay? So that's 50 years. 
that we're going to be doing what we're doing today with maybe some. I think Telsa and electric cars are a big diversion area, rabbit hole. So keep your eye on the electric car. This other article we might get a chance to talk on is electricity that they're going to produce back in uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and Labrador. So, you know, we have this situation where we're talking about doing things, but if you look at, at what's happening, like as an example, the Intercon Mill and at uh, Husky Oil Tidewater now, they got a rendering plant going there, but they're going to make biodiesel. Um, uh, Intercon and Canfor are going to build a biodiesel plant. Biodiesel is the coming thing. So that uses both uh, trees and it uses whatever else, grass, corn, whatever you can get your hands on. Garbage. So I I think, well, to give you an example, and and I get a kick out of this one too, one passenger tire takes five gallons of oil. So unless you can come up with some way to run those electric cars around without tires, you're going to need a lot of oil. And that's actually a valid statistic. It used to be seven, but it's five now. You know? And, <laughs> and there's they, millions of tires got efficiencies. Yeah. They make this tire smaller now. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it is, I guess, yeah. Trudy, I mean, is this, is Eric right? This is not going away? We need to just suck it up and, and continue to drill? Uh well, I don't think well, you should drill up there. I, I didn't oh, you didn't that. say that? Okay, okay. <laughs> no, I think that oil and gas will be used. Do that at the very la- very least. But but the trouble with sovereignty is if you don't do something, somebody will do it for you. I mean, that's the question. Exactly, is, and we're just pulling ourselves out of the world market. I mean, that's what Trudeau has been doing con- like for the last number of years. He said there was no case to sell natural gas to Germany. Well, the Americans are doing it. And so we're... Like at the end of the day, the, the the reality is that you need money to do stuff, and and I and I would like to come at this from a little bit of a different angle. The people in the north, the people living up there, they already had their seal hunt uh, and the, the whole seal fur industry that they were using to support themselves. We completely killed that with our modern sensibilities and told them, "No, you're being archaic, and you know you're killing these poor little seal cubs." When when that is actually how they supported themselves, and now we're going after you know something like this, and it's like. I'm not sure that we actually want to be a country that becomes simply a park for the world's richest people and we become the you know hotel maids and, and stuff. So I think it's it's a bad path to go on and I'm sad to see that this happened. Yeah. Okay, well uh we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about energy transitions etc in the next segment but we'll take a short break here. A message from the War Amps. When you use a War Amps key tag, you protect your keys. If you lose your keys, the finder can call the number on the back of the tag. Or drop them in any mailbox. And the War Amps will return your keys to you. For free. Order your key tags today at waramps.ca. And make a difference in the lives of amputees, like me. Thank you. Your Prince George Public Library is seeking nominations for the 2023 Gene Clark Local History Awards. There are two categories, the Service Award and the Publication Award. Nomination letters must clearly identify the nominee, the category they're nominated in, and make a compelling case for why the service or publication is deserving. Nominations can be emailed to jrubido at pgpl.ca or dropped off at the downtown branch of the library. The nomination deadline for the 2023 Gene Clark Awards is Monday. 
Omanika Fish and Wildlife in Prince George is hiring a fisheries biologist. This is a temporary full-time position for at least one year starting this month, after which it may be extended or become permanent. For specific position-related inquiries, email travis.gerwing at gov.bc.ca. That's Omanika Fish and Wildlife looking for a temporary full-time fisheries biologist to start this month. Application deadline is Sunday. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today. Southeast winds at 20 gusts into 40k, becoming light this afternoon. A high of minus 1 with a morning wind chill to minus 9. Tonight, a few clouds, wind up to 15k, a low of minus 5 with a wind chill to minus 11. For Saturday, mainly sunny, wind from the south at 20, a high of 0 with a morning wind chill to minus 10. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Kind of a similar topic here, actually, related to the tra- transitioning away from oil and gas towards other other forms of energy. Natural Resources Manager Jonathan Wilkinson at the, the federal level has, has said he's going to be introducing this just transition bill. It was actually a condition of the uh, supply agreement, confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the Liberals. And among other things, it's going to uh, help the Atlantic provinces get off of coal-powered electricity. Um, and then He's he's saying that part of it will be retraining uh, folks who are working in oil and gas industries to be working in in renewable uh, energy industries. Although he also says he's not worried about that because there's so many opportunities in uh, the renewable energy sector that we don't you know we shouldn't even worry about people losing their jobs in oil and gas because they'll be able to find work elsewhere. Uh, Art, is this the way to go? I have a feeling you might not think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't see any reason to get off oil and gas. They're abundant, they're cheap, they're reliable, and uh, the, the so-called renewables that he's pushing are not. And where's, you know, there there is a, a, an industry uh, or, or economic demand for the products uh, of oil and gas and, and coal, but for for the, the renewables, it's artificial. And the government ends up paying massive amounts of dollars for it. So when all these people, you got people up in Fort Mac and, you know, from the native community up in right next to Fort Mac, they're working in the oil sands and they're making a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year with not even a high school education. And you think they're going to go and get a similar job, uh, doing something with windmills or solar panels? No, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, um, and besides which, you, we can't get rid of the oil. The renewables, wind and solar, they are only part-time. They don't work full-time. You have to have a complete, separate, additional backup energy system somehow to fill in when those uh, times are going. Or you need batteries, and that kind of battery capacity is absolutely impossible. I read an article on that recently once. I was thinking it would take $120 trillion just to make the batteries to replace the uh, oil and gas uh, generation in the United States. But that's assuming that there are enough rare earth minerals like lithium to even (laughs) make the batteries, right? If there are, yeah. Eric, I mean, this is is a big deal. This is where people are going. And, And if we're going to, you know, save the uh, the climate and prevent these. Abs- I mean, we're looking at ninety uh, percent of California being under a flood advisory right now. This is all climate change related. Is this well, the way to go? Supposedly, we don't know because we can't trace it back far enough. But I, I tell you, when you see what's going on 
up in the Andes and some other places around the world. Actually, it's going on in Hawaii right now with volcanoes erupting. The Earth is much bigger than our minds that are trying to track what's going on out there. And so we always have a scenario for what's coming. <clears throat> I think we're going to go bio to biodiesel uh, or bioelectric or hybrid electric cars. I think that's where we're going. It's going to be part electricity and part diesel. Everybody's going to be happy. And we're going to... <laughs> You know, they, they, they did an experiment here a number of years ago where they actually went into a heavy industrial area, got rid of all the uh, industry, and because there was no clouds or anything reflecting uh, the heat uh, like there was before, the temperature went up two or three degrees. So getting rid of all this cloud up there doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's gonna, we're going to cool the earth. We could actually heat it up because we're not going to have that reflection anymore. Hmm. The the biodiesel that you're talking about is um, you're talking about mass mass production of biodiesel from like vegetable waste or vegetable waste. They're used, like I said, out here. They're using. Uh, uh, they're making hydrogen out here right now. Yeah, that's a different thing. Okay, it's actually they'll use wood waste. They'll use wood chips. They'll use old trees, not not old forest, <laughs> <laughs> whatever they can get out of the bush and use. And grass and corn or whatever, and they put it in a big pressure cooker at about 800 degrees Fahrenheit, and then they press it down and squeeze everything out of it, take it over to the refinery and make diesel. They're building it right now. You go out there and look, you see, and they're ready to go. Wow. So this is part of, maybe maybe this is actually part of a just transition to get off of fossil yeah. fuels to use different kinds of, yeah. of fuels. Trudy, I mean, is this the way that the received wisdom, whether you're skeptical or not about it, is that, fossil fuel use is causing climate change we've uh the oil industry itself has known that for since the 50s so is this the way to start to tackle climate change by no actually getting no into i actually transition? don't think so um i think that you know if the if the market wants to produce biodiesel you know go knock your socks out um socks off um but on a large scale it's not sustainable at all it's it's much worse than using petrochemicals to run our vehicles uh the solutions have got to be something else it's um i'm always leery anytime government has this ma this grand plan and, and and decrees that they know exactly what we need to do because government is notoriously bad at big giant decisions like that um because when, when anytime that you're using a renewable resource what it means is that you're using land uh and so if you're using uh, renewable uh, sources to make uh, biodiesel, it means that you're stripping your, the forest. You're not growing food. You're not. You're stripping the forest, which we know is an issue, and you know because stuff needs to be left out there in order to replenish the soil. And you're using farmland. Um, these are not things that we need to <laughs> that we should lightly uh, part with, like because I mean, if you look long term, what is the benefit? Like, and sometimes people will say to me, well, you were in favor of the West Coast Olefins Project. Um, and, and I was, like, at a high level of thinking. And, but that's because for the amount, the footprint on farmland, it was very small. And the impact was small in comparison to the amount of, of energy and wealth produced. Um, and so for, for biodiesel, the, the cost and the benefit factor is much smaller. But I mean, this just transition isn't just about using biodiesel. That was one, one example that Eric brought up. It's about other, other kinds of, um, renewable resources. Uh, Eric mentioned windmills. There's solar, right? I mean, those, those, that kind of like all, high technology. Yeah, but they all require petrochemicals to be manufactured 
it's it's a bit of a shell game at the end of the do day. Do they I require think. petrochemicals to be burned? Because that's the issue, right? Is petrochemicals are are an amazing thing. You can make so many things out of them. We happen to just burn most of them. I think we what we need to do is just get much better at emissions. Um, and I and I'm not like like in so many things that we're doing right now for emissions are not cost effective. Um, so there, the, I think if we want to go that route, let's go for research on that area. We're going to take a short break. We'll be hearing from Peter after this. The next feature gallery presentation at Studio 2880 is Wings, Wheels, and Whimsy from Linda Anderson. It's a showcase of watercolor antique cars, birds of the feather, and a sprinkling of carefree, happy art pieces that will bring a smile to your face. The display is open as a casual walk-in style show. Stop by to enjoy a hot drink and explore the art. Linda Anderson's Wings, Wheels, and Whimsy through January 17th in the Studio 2880 Feature Gallery at 2880 15th Avenue. Bring your teens out to be inspired at Studio 2880's next teen art workshop. In partnership with your Prince George Public Library, the teen art workshop will connect your teens with some of our local masters who'll share incredible art knowledge. Teens are asked to bring examples of their work and be ready with some questions. It's a free drop-in event at your Prince George Public Library. The Teen Art Workshop, Saturday, January 14th from 1 to 3 at the library. The end of the week is time for well-earned relaxation and play. Join Two Rivers Gallery on select Friday evenings each month to enjoy the freedom of artistic expression, a fun atmosphere, and a complimentary refreshment. Open to adults with any level of art experience. Registration for the next Friday Art Disco is available through the adult programs link at tworiversgallery.ca. Friday Art Disco, new at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. The Prince George Potter's Guild is taking registration for upcoming classes. Beginner Hand Building Level 2 will take place Tuesdays from April 20th to May 25th with six evenings of instruction followed by one month of studio time. Clay and use of tools as well as glazing and firing during classes is also included. Instructed by Natalie Brackus, registration and full details on this course are available through the Potter's Guild link under programs at studio2880.com. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Peter, I mean, the ultimate the ultimate uh, question here is actually, should we continue to be burning fossil fuels because we understand that they are contributing to climate change? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think it's a tremendous waste to burn fossil fuels. Uh, the When we look at fossil fuels, they're, they're one of the gifts of nature, right, in terms of their versatility. They produce literally thousands and thousands of, of products, everything from fertilizer to pharmaceuticals uh, and, and so on. Yet uh, we have so much of it that it's just been, in my opinion, wasted that way and contributing to climate change. You know, so in terms of uh, having a transition, a, a just transition in all this, when we're looking at the oil and gas industry, I see, the, you know, the, the transition should be to getting more value out of that resource, out of the oil and gas resource, uh, not just, you know, walking away from it, you know, completely or anything like that, right, but uh, going down that road and... Um, that to me is uh, the, the most important thing. Like when we look at resources uh, that we have, whether they're wood or whether they're oil and gas and all that, the whole issue always is how much value can we get out of them. And going down that road, I think, is the way to go. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating if you think about, okay, we've seen uh, the price of petrochemicals skyrocket in the last couple of years, partly because of the war in Ukraine, partly because of supply issues with, you know, just labor around COVID. Um, 
and other, you know, OPEC certainly has a, has a role to play there. If that continues, we're going to see the cost of shipping continue to skyrocket. And, uh, this is already happening, what they call onshoring, right? Bringing back manufacturing uh, capacity to North America, your places where it had already left where the markets actually are for these products. That would be like a knock-on effect of, you know, either artificially or just naturally of that of that increase in the cost of transportation, therefore decreasing the amount of, of, uh, of fossil fuels we're burning, right? I mean, Art, do you see any benefits to these kinds of changes? No. <laughs> Look, uh, as far as what Eric was saying about uh, biodiesel, uh, there is a process called thermal depolymerization where oh. you can take garbage, especially all the plastic garbage that everybody's too worried about. Like Foothills and, Landfill? Uh, yeah, and, and uh, there is a, a process by which you can turn it into oil. And it's not black crude. It's pretty clean oil already and takes very little refining. And it's not just from plastic. It's even from organic waste, anything like that. It can be done. Uh, I heard about that, oh, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, the cost of that at that time was $80 a barrel. So not really competitive. And as soon as you bring that online in a big way, the price goes down and it's not cost competitive. So that's why it hasn't been done on a big scale. But I mean, this goes back to the question of like, one is how much energy is going into it to make it, to produce it. Actually, it, it, uh, it can uh, fuel itself and still have lots left over. Wow. And, but, and then, and then the question of like, like, should we be burning this? I mean, I think that it's, sure. it's, it's back to like, you know, to get a little existential, like a lifestyle question here. We've become kind of addicted to this stuff, and we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the the how markets are kind of manipulated earlier. Uh, why do we all drive cars, right? I mean, there there was a huge lobbying effort to in Vancouver, for instance, rip up all of the all of the streetcar tracks. You could get from Chilliwack to Vancouver pretty easily in the 1940s. Uh, yeah, and it, you you don't think we should be driving cars? Then you should park yours for a month and see how well you do. Well, this is we we've built the system around it, right? Yeah, it, because it, it gives it gives an, every individual so much freedom and independence. And uh, I know governments don't like that sometimes, but uh, there's a huge advantage to having your own vehicles. The reason we don't drive <clears throat> we drive cars is because we looked at what would happen if we all rode horses. We didn't like what we seen. <laughs> we we were riding horses, or we were riding streetcars. Like okay, so I've lived in you know a couple of big urban centers. Two hundred horses. Out here you don't right. need a car, and right? I, I like you can actually get around by walking or or transit in places that were built before the car came online, right? And I think one disadvantage that we've found ourselves in because that because of our love of cars, and I and I totally support. Like I'm not opposed to having cars, but. We are we are losing freedom just simply by the logistical problem of owning a car. Like not here so much, but in Vancouver, where it takes, like, in, what did you say? It took it used to take forty minutes to get from Vancouver. Well, to I don't know how long it took, but you could you, you could, could take get, a, a streetcar from Vancouver yeah. to Chilliwack. Yeah, and now it would probably it, two and a half hours. Uh, it's, I mean, I mean sometimes if, if you're on. Bad. Yeah, if it's during traffic. It's you well, still take a train, but you got to get up early. Well, it just depends what you want to do. If I'm doing some work on my house and, oh, I ran out of uh, number eight screws, I just hop in my pickup, go to the hardware store, pick them up, come back and keep going. How else are you going to do it? 
go out, walk you out. Thought to, about to any screws you needed. Come on, man. <laughs> walk out to the. You know, you never think of all, everything all ahead of time, and you just imagine yourself going grocery shopping. You walk out, stand when it's minus twenty at a bus stop, shivering in the cold. You get into the bus. It finally gets you to the store. You pick up your groceries. You got three, four bags of groceries. You go wait for the bus. You climb on it, and then, oh, uh, no, gosh, that is is a scenario without cars. Now, if you really believe the global warming scam. Uh, <laughs> we, we have an idea of Art's opinion of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you need to look up a fellow by the name of Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, he's a Danish fellow. He believed in all the uh, doomsday scenarios until he saw some facts. I won't go into it all. But uh, he's wrote a book called A Skeptical Environmentalist, and he believes in the global warming thing. He believes we are causing it. But he said, all this money we are spending on transitioning is a waste. $3.8 trillion we've spent on it so far, and carbon dioxide emissions keep going up. We have accomplished nothing. With the kind of money we spent on trying all that kind of stuff, we could have provided clean drinking water and sanitation for every person in the world. It's a waste of money. He says, we have lots of time. It isn't happening fast. It's happening slow. We have plenty of time to do the research and find out the technology. I, I mean, I guess that's that's another question here is, do we actually have the time with we see every year getting worse? And, and the, No, we don't. We if, just, you, we do. if you look back hold on, hold in on, history. Art, hold on, Art. You don't have to interrupt me. The the uh, we do see worse every. It seems like every decade we get a new record for wildfires. We get a new record for flooding. Look at what happened in British Columbia last year, right? That like if you're if you're going to tell me that no, we don't see these records, then then Google it, man, because okay. this is this is the uh, truth, I'll, right? I'll show you something on wildfires. Um, you know, NASA tells us that. Wildfires have been increasing, and they show you a graph, right, from 1983 to now. And yes, they're going up. And this is worldwide. But why did they start in 1983? Because if you go back to 1923, that was five times more the wildfire area burned than there is now. They, they pick and choose. Hurricanes, the same thing. They show you the last few decades. Yes, hurricane activity is going up slightly. But if you look back 150 years, it's going down. Peter, you got the last word here. I don't think we can throw the dice in regards to climate change. We got a, we're in a one small planet here, and we, we have to be really careful about what we do. I, I believe that we, we have to keep our eye on the ball there in terms of this uh, emissions problems and uh, the climate change and so on, right? But no throwing dice on that one. You don't want to lo lose for sure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFISFM Prince George, proudly partnered with local community groups like the Railway and Forestry Museum on River Road next to Cottonwood Island Park.